Welcome to Overcome Podcast. In today's episode, I'm going to talk with the legendary Jim Pedro, four-time Olympic athlete, world champion, and also a coach of great athletes. Uh, among them, we have Ka Kayla Harrison, Ronda Rousey, and many, many more. Jim is going to talk about the mindset of an athlete and how he is able to identify the key attributes to be a champion. Not only that, but he's going to talk about some really interesting facts about his career as an athlete and some of the obstacles that he had to overcome. Stay there, we'll be right back. Welcome to Overcome Podcast, Jimmy Pedro. Nice to meet you. Nice meeting you, Jimmy. Uh, been a fan of your work for a long time, so it's a huge honor to, to really have you on the show. Thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Jimmy, I, I will start uh, the first question because the, the podcast is about overcome and about overcoming uh, a lot of obstacles. We had a lot of judokas in this show, Raddy, uh, Nick Del Popo. Uh, carry uh, and um, there are a lot of uh, things that are common but your career is is so fantastic the way that it spread it so for so many years and you were on the top for so many years uh, so the first question is how did you keep that longevity in a sport that really beats up your body so much you know <laughs> did you have any kind of uh, special regime that you you always were focused on longevity rather than like explosion in one year and not really f uh, focus on, on the long term well it, yeah. <laughs> number one I'm paying the price today uh, <laughs> for, for all of those years competing I'm definitely paying the price today I've got a, a disc problem in my neck I've got numbness in my hand all the time about a month ago I, I had a back back spasm I think it was related to a lower disc problem in my back I was on prednisone for about three weeks straight to try to calm down all the inflammation so there's no doubt my my body has a lot of mileage on it and I'm feeling it now that I turned 50 so I can say that but in terms of the the regime and the way I was was as an athlete um, I was extremely flexible and I tried to maintain my flexibility mm. throughout my entire career so I did a lot of stretching exercises before training after training just to be you know supple and limber and in loose all the time so that was a big part of it is is staying um staying loose mm -hmm. and inflexible so that was a big part of my training regime and also i never let myself get out of shape i never took time mm. off from training um i was all you know a lot of you know mma fighters and boxers and you know people who have a season to their to their sport typically you see them you know gain 15 20 or 40 pounds right off season and then they slim down and they get back in shape for when it you know when it's go time but you know judo's a year-round sport and I was somebody that just never took time off I always stayed fit or stayed active um, meaning that you know if the world championships just ended and I was taking a little break from judo I still ran or I still lifted I still stayed fit and I never, never let myself get out of shape and I think that helped prevent a lot of mm -hmm. injuries And it helped me, you know, have a long. Were career. you able to stretch throughout all those years? Because I was looking to some of your numbers: uh, four Olympic Games, uh, two times medalist, world champion 1999, uh, Pan Am uh, champion 1995, 1999. So when you look at the spread between 1995 and 2004, I mean, this is like uh, nine years on top, and this 
the, the question is, uh, did you always do a lot of randori? Because there is a lot of controversy about doing randori all, all the time uh, because it's really hard on the body. Uh, or did you focus more on Uchikomis uh, uh, and randori was something that you did like twice a week or something? No, randori was never just twice a week. <laughs> randori was all the time. Um, you know, my career started really in the, in the late, I'd say early 90s is when I got on the international scene. And, you know, I had success as a, as a junior athlete taking third place in the Junior World Championships in 1990. I really broke through on the senior circuit. You know, 1991, started winning medals in Europe when I was 20, 21 years old. I was actually a medal contender for the – I took my first bronze medal in the World Championships when I was 20 years old in 1991. And I was a contender for a medal at the 92 Olympics. Um, and then after that, you know, I always finished 93. I finished fifth in the – World Championships, 95, I finished bronze. And so really the career span from 91 till 2004. Um, but I, I had to, right? You're, mm -hmm. you're an American. You're an American. You don't have as many training partners as, as the rest of the world has. You certainly can't train twice a day because you don't have any partners to train with in America who will train twice a day with you. Um, you know, so I always had to, you know, make sure that I got some tough physical training. It wasn't always with the highest level training partners, but I, I made do with what I had. You know, I re mm -hmm. really basically just went from dojo to dojo in America. And, you know, Monday night I would go in one dojo, Tuesday I'd go to another, Wednesday I'd train at my own dojo and just moved around to get as many randories as I could. But it certainly wasn't like it was intense all the time and it wasn't, you know, 365 days a year with intensity. Mm -hmm. It was very intense when I went overseas and I did training camps and we did two a day overseas and did a lot of Randori training there, but when I got to came, come back home, you know, the level of my partners was was a lot less, um, so it wasn't as physical, it wasn't as intense, mm -hmm. and that's when I was able to work on new things and give my body a little bit of a rest. Yeah, yeah, and and, and probably when you were training with someone that was not on your level, you probably exposed yourself to uh, uh, way more because uh, you were trying new things, right? Right. Yeah. For sure. Do you, in your with your experience, do you think that the, the Japanese they they run dory every day, uh, uh, or is more in the US that you see that? You know, they do randori every day in Japan. Um, a lot of times, twice a day. But realistically, they do ju they do do judo um, or they do randori training every day. The Japanese national team. Um, the difference is that their randori is more playtime. You know, it's not it's not a competition. It's not it's very relaxed in nature. It's not intense. Mm. So you can do you know ten rounds of randori in Japan comfortably, and you're not physically exhausted when you're done. Obviously, an American who goes there and is training with different partners and it's all new, it, physically exhausting right. for us. But when you watch them randori with each other, you know it's everybody just grabs the gi, we move around freely, and we try to catch they try to catch one another, and it's. They have a lot of fun doing it. A lot of laughs. They're joking with each other. It's not this physical battle contest. It's just, you know, it's live. Don't get yeah. me wrong. And their technique is amazing. But it's not grueling. Mm -hmm. And the, the likelihood of getting injured is far less. That's why when you see them go to European training camps, when the Japanese team comes and trains in Europe, everybody's out for blood. Everybody's trying to, you know, throw the Japanese person and beat them up and, <laughs> and do whatever. So prove themselves, if yeah. you will. So... That's when you'll see the Japanese national team like 
they'll do two days on and they'll take a day off and then they'll come back and do, you know, another day and then they go home. That's enough. They've had enough. They're just trying to get a flavor and a feel for how the rest of the world plays yeah. judo, but they're not necessarily trying to bang heads, you know, every single day. Yeah, makes makes total sense. And I've seen some footage of them uh, training and is exactly what you said is very flow. It's almost like jujitsu flow, but randori. <laughs> Correct. Exactly. It's not 100% intensity. It's uh, of course there's a guy you know every once in a while a young guy will catch an older guy and he'll get pissed off and then they'll go hard for five minutes but um, you know or he'll have done something over the weekend to piss piss the older guy off and the guy will throw him through the floor or something you see that occasionally in Japan but you know most of the time it's just fun relaxed randori yeah so not only you were an amazing athlete uh, throughout your career uh, as an active athlete but you also trained some big names kyla harrison travis stevens ronda rousey uh and uh, and probably these are uh, just some of the major names there are way more and there are all other names also that probably are not as famous as uh, these ones that i i said uh, but with your experience uh, from the subject of overcoming, what really make uh, an athlete to stand out? When you are training someone, do you, do you have that feeling? Well, this person really is going to stand out in front of the others. And, and if you do, what are some of the attributes that you see immediately? I think the main thing that all of the athletes that I got, uh, you know, the privilege of working with, because it really was a privilege helping them out in their career and helping them reach their goals and and being part of their career and their lives. Um, the one thing that stands out with all of the champions is they had a mindset. It was their mentality. It was their mindset. It was the, the heart of a, of a champion and the fight of a warrior. All of those athletes that you mentioned, they would, they would kill themselves to succeed. They would put their head through a wall if that's what it took to win the match or to, to win the title. Um, all of them were extremely miserable when they didn't succeed, yeah. you know, so they had a will, they had a will to win that was far greater than accepting defeat, you know, and, and you, you know, you, you see it, saw it a little bit in Rhonda's um, MMA yeah. career, you know, you could see that she would do anything to yeah. win a fight, right, to win a match, she would never tap, she would never submit, and I think, you know, Travis and Kayla and the rest of them, it's all the same, you know, it really bothered them to lose, and, and it, you know, they they almost punish themselves when they did lose by either, you know, locking themselves in their room. Uh, they just couldn't accept the fact that they didn't win. They would then train extremely hard. Either that night or the next day, they'd be on the mat or they'd be, you know, out for a run. They'd be they'd be trying to get mm -hmm. make up, and they couldn't get that taste of defeat out of their out of their mouth. That they they couldn't wait the chance to step on the mat again just to win because they love winning. They they hated losing more than they loved winning. That's um, that's really good. And what I see, you know, when I see a young kid training, or I see a young kid go to competition, if losing doesn't bother them enough, then they didn't put their heart and soul into the journey and, and into the training to get to that place. You know, losing really does have to bother a champion. Interesting. Uh, uh, now, when you say bothering a champion, to the point that that person will get depressed, or bothering in the sense that that person wants to immediately start training again and react and, and get better. Exactly. It, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be to the point of depression. It should be to the point of you know what? I hate this feeling right now, and I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get better for next time. And if that means go out for a run, if that means get in the weight room, if that means review my video, if that means start working on a new technique, 
I, I'm not content with where I am. I got to get better so that next time I don't have this same feeling again. Yeah, make, make, makes a lot of sense. Uh, there is another aspect, and you train a lot of young kids to people that are coming to, to, to do the judo. Uh, how do you handle the the athletes' nerves? Uh, because there's a lot of athletes that they make mistakes when they are nervous, right? And there is always that uh, nervous feeling. Some people say that it's good to be nervous because you are more focused. Some, some people say it's better to be relaxed. What, what's your take on that? Very natural to be nervous. If you've put your heart and soul into something and you know it matters whether you win or lose, then anxiety and nervousness is a natural part of competition. Um, it is the athletes that learn how to deal with anxiety, learn how to deal with these nerves, learn how to calm themselves down you know, and get themselves into a zone mm. where it's a comfort zone, where I've been here before, I know what it feels like, this is a normal feeling, I'm not going to let this bother me. And we actually, you know, do some breathing techniques with the athletes um, to, to sort of settle their nerves, calm them, to help calm themselves down, reduce their heart rate. Because if there's one thing that kills an athlete, it's anxiety. Yep. You cannot perform at your highest level if, if all you're thinking about is, is losing or, or worried about what the outcome is going to be. So you have to just trust. Trust that you've done the training. You've got to learn to teach your body to relax. And again, we do a lot of like breathing techniques they close their eyes think about nothing you know big big deep breaths in hold the breath breathe out big it's you know step repeat relax before you compete go out on the mat fully confident know what the mission is execute the game plan and just trust in your training and what, i think what, it's important and i think it's important that athletes learn how to deal with this anxiety and sort of get themselves into a ritual yeah. of of comfort were you this type of athlete uh, when when you were competing? Uh, that you you had those moments and that you have to practice uh, the breathing exercise or things like that? Yes, yes. Because early on, as a youngster, I wasn't right. When I was sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen years old, I wasn't like that. No, because I had to learn. Right, mm -hmm. I had to learn what it meant to be. You know, I had a lot of nervous energy, and for me, I would just run up and down the. I'd do sprints. I'd run up and down the. You know the the warm up area. I was always getting adrenaline out by exercising, and ultimately, you know, as I got older, I realized, man, I can't keep this up. I'm too old. <laughs> you know, my body. I'm tired before I go out there and fight. So, I had to train my body and, and understand like this is all part of um, you know successful competition and peak performance. Did did you uh, progress uh, from from that standpoint of uh, anxiety and nerves over time? Because I've seen people. I heard people saying, "Well, this feeling never goes away. You just no, you just learn how to handle." But the feeling is always the same. Is that do you think is that a true statement? Yes, the feeling never goes away, but the severity of the feeling minimizes and decreases when okay. you learn how to deal with it. It's almost like, you know, I tell athletes all the time, right? When when you when you compete often, when you're competing all the time, you don't get nervous anymore because it, it, you're, you're comfortable competing. You do it all the time. You don't have enough energy to be nervous, you know, to be nervous all the time. So in order to have good performance, you've got to compete often and frequently because you just get used to it. You, you learn how to deal with it. It's only when you have a layoff for a very, very long time and you haven't done something for maybe nine months or six months. I haven't competed in six months. This feeling is now odd to me. I haven't had it for six months. Yeah. But when it was just last week or two weeks ago, 
you learn how to deal with it. It, it. It's like natural part of your training and your preparation. And that's when you see athletes that have long layoffs. You know, they're typically rusty or they have bad performances. A perfect example is what we just saw with Conor McGregor. Yep. You know, to be honest with you, you know, if you watch MMA, he just, as soon as he stepped out of his Rolls Royce in Abu Dhabi and, and he started walking with his suit and he was fluttering around with his suit and walking kind of strangely, I said to my, my wife and my kids, I said, man, that, that guy's nervous right now. He's not himself. Yeah. And he ended up having a bad performance. Yeah. And to me, that was, you know, he hadn't been in the ring in a while. He hadn't fought. He wasn't used to it. And those other guys are young and they're hungry. And I think that this actually happened also uh, recently on the world's uh, judo. Because of the pandemic, a lot of athletes were not competing. So it was there was some match that was pure force, not really a whole lot of technique. And they were really tight. rusty. Yeah, yep. They were very tight, right? Because it was foreign to them. They hadn't done it for a long time. It's like when you, you get rusty, you know, and you do get tight. You haven't had that feeling. You know, even that Maruyama match with uh, Abe. Now, those guys hadn't fought for a year, you know, mm. and and they weren't they weren't their their true selves in that match. Although it was a long good match, if you're a judo fan watching it, they were tight. It was very you know it was very uneventful. Yeah, I I I'm wondering how the Olympics gonna be this year with all the these intervals between ma- uh, competitions, you know. Well, I mean, the IGF has just put out to you know they've just put out a full schedule of Grand Slam events between now leading up to the Olympic Games, and they they have a lot of high level competitions coming up. In fact, they're going to have a World Championships uh, in June this year, right before the Olympics. They're going to have a World oh, Championship. Great, yeah. So, I actually just saw Nick's uh, Nick's Del Popo update that he that he is going to Israel. Yeah, Israel is coming up now. They have they have a Grand Slam in Tashkent and Uzbekistan. They have um, they have a lot of that Grand Slam Paris is going to be in May. The World Championships is going to be in June. The Pan Ams or the Continentals are going to be in April. There's a lot of big you know high level events for these athletes to compete in. This is great because this is definitely going to make them peak by the Olympics. Correct. Yeah, that that's a really uh, good point. Uh, now, Jimmy, uh, you brought a, a, a great point about mindset, and um, this is something that I've been reading a lot about uh, because I actually got injured uh, in September last year during a jiu-jitsu tournament. I, I had a Lindstrom injury on my foot. It was exactly doing a Tayatoshi uh, that it went wrong and I broke my foot. So I had Sorry to... to yes. Terrible. I had to do surgery. I'm out of the mats since September last year. And that was the whole idea of creating the podcast, uh, talking about uh, overcoming obstacles. Did you ever had any major injury that made you to stop uh, uh, training and you have to really recover for a long time? Mm-hmm. So I had, I had in my career, I, I had two major, uh, one major, major injury and another one that was just a really bad setback for me. Um, so... My first major injury was when I was 23 years old. So I had already competed in my first Olympics. I had already competed in two world championships. Um, and it was in the finals of a competition in Korea. I was fighting against a Russian in the finals of that event. Um, it was the Korean Grand Slam back then. It was called the Sungok Cup. And in the finals of that event, the Russian picked me up with a Tegaruma. And instead of taking the fall, I stuck my head out. Ooh. And when he threw me, I went straight down on top of my head. 
and then my feet went over my head and I did like a wrestler's bridge. Mm. It was, you know, it was a Wazari score for him. I finished the fight. I didn't really feel anything. I didn't have any problems. But then the next day, when I when I was on the airplane, um, I started having a lot of pain in the back of my neck, and I I couldn't I couldn't like lift my head up off my chest very well. And then by the time the plane was over, I had to like keep my chin against my chest to have any comfort because every wow. time I lifted my head up, the disc in the back of my neck was was pinching the nerve, and then. What happened was over time, it just kept getting gradually worse to the point where I had to go see a doctor because my entire arm went numb on me all the way down my fingertips. Uh, I could not lift, I couldn't lift my chin up off my chest at all. Um, and you were young, right? You I was were, 23. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, I ended up having to get an MRI. I couldn't, I couldn't lay down in a bed. I couldn't sleep. There was, you know, I was miserable. I went to the doctors. They said I had two bulging discs in my neck, um, C4, C5, and C5, C6 that were pinching, you know, hit, almost hitting the spinal cord and what was causing massive nerve damage. And after reviewing the MRI, you know, the first diagnosis from the doctor was that, listen, kid, you are never going to play any contact sports ever again in your life. Oh, he wow. told me my goal, my goal for you my goal for you is to get you functioning back to a normal human being again. I want you to function as a normal human being, but you're never going to play sports again in your life. Of course, you didn't, you know, didn't believe that, of course. Well, obviously, my first reaction, I was devastated, right? Yeah. I was crushed. I mean, I was a Division One wrestler in college. I had just won the Eastern Championships and gone to NCAAs the year before. You know, I had been to the Olympics. I was hoping to go to the Olympics again. And I walked out of there at 23 years. I was in tears, yeah, you know, nice. upset, obviously. My first reaction was upset. But I also knew how much pain I was in all the time. And the fact that I couldn't do anything physically, you tend to believe it, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, I went back to my apartment in school at Brown University. I got myself a traction unit. And it was the only thing that would relieve any pain for me. It was I would just – I would hang the thing over the door. I would hook the harness up to my head. I would sit in a chair – and, you know, for hours, I would just let this thing pull my head mm -hmm. away from my body. And that's how a lot of nights, that's how I would sleep is with this thing just pulling on my head all night because I couldn't lay down and I couldn't lay down in a bed. So I did that for months. Um, you know, my arm stayed against my chest like this. My my entire arm shrunk to nothing. I lost all the the nerve caused damage in the right side of my body. Wow. My my tricep shrunk to zero. My my chest on my right side of my body shrunk to nothing. I had massive atrophy because I wasn't using those muscles ever. Are we talking about uh, how many months on this? Like three, four, five months? I had four, mo four months of nothing. Four months of just numbness in my hand 24-7 and not being able to use the right side of my body at all. You know, it wasn't that I could move it. But I had no strength and it just didn't really work for me. Mm -hmm. Like the nerve was dead. So that nerve had to regenerate, you know. And, um, I, you know, I took a lot of anti-inflammatories. I was sitting in that traction unit all the time. I stayed away from all exercises. And as soon as, like, the numbness started going away a little bit, I could start to lift my head back up. And after four straight months of that, I was able to, like, move my head again. And I was in an okay – I was I wouldn't say I was pain-free, but I could start to, like, train my arm yeah. to move again. And I, I'd go to the 
I just go into the weight room and I would just make my arm move and I would, you know, take a barbell and my left arm would move, but my right arm would you know, shake and I'd yeah. get it. Yeah. I'd get it. I'd get it. You know, mm-hmm. and just every day I just rehabbed. I went in a swimming pool and I just kicked on the board and kind of used my hands to move around. And I did that for another month and then I was pain free. And it just, I don't know, dumb luck or what, but it just, it just started to come back. So, you know, I started doing judo again after about six months. Once I could get full range of motion back in all my arm and I felt like I had some strength again, then I started judo just doing, you know, uchi komis and moving and stuff like that. And about, it took me about a nine month time to recover where I could actually, you know, full time do randori and train. Wow, 100%. that's amazing story because I can only imagine those four initial months how was your mental state because you were in the peak of uh, wrestling and judo and you suddenly you cannot move your arm. Prob- I was the captain of the wrestling I was captain of the wrestling team. I had to go to air- I went to every single meet, I went to every single practice, but I just sat on the sideline and I watched. I missed my whole senior my senior year in college, I couldn't wrestle. Yeah, I I read a, uh, a lot about the psychological aspect of injuries on athletes um, because I was going through some really dark moments, not being after surgery with a lot of pain, and sure. it's it's a it's a serious thing, and and it looks like people don't really realize the psychological aspect that uh, these athletes go through when they have such an injury like that. So did you have any help or was, was everything on your own, your, your own will to get better? I mean, I had my, you know, she's my, she's my wife now at the time she was my girlfriend. I just had her supporting me and helping me and, you know, encouraging me and, you know, coming with me to, you know, when I started training again, she was fearful that I was going to get injured again, right? Mm-hmm. Or I was going to hit my head or something like that. But um, I had her support and yeah, I, pretty much on my own. I didn't, you know, back then we didn't have too much in the by way of, uh, you know, psychological coaches or, you know, people that could help you. That wasn't really a focus back then. Yeah. No, that's uh, that's very interesting. That, and that was when you were uh, 23. And then you said that you had another major one later on. So the other one was very unfortunate timing-wise. I don't think a lot of people realize in my career, you know, I I, I have one, one world title. I have two bronze medals. I fought for a fifth at another world championships. But back then, the world championships was only every two years. Mm-hmm. And when I was in the height of my I, – I think I was in my peak performance between 1995 and 1999. That was my best years in, in judo where I – almost won every tournament that I competed in. Um, right before the 1997 World Championships, I was at a training camp in Colorado Springs at the training center, and uh, the bat was really, really crowded, and I told the coach at the time that I said, hey, there's too many guys training here. I gotta, you got to clear some of these guys out. Someone's going to get hurt. He said, oh, no, don't worry. You'll be okay. Oh. I went and kept training, with, and sure enough, one of the heavyweights that was training next to me threw another heavyweight right onto my leg. And this was like one week before we were supposed to leave for the World Championships in 1997. And I didn't even want to go to the camp in the first place, but the coach, and oh, you know, you're one of the leaders of the country. you got to come to this camp and be with the team. And I finally said, okay, I'll come. And then I complained about how many people were on the mat. They didn't listen to that. And sure enough, a heavyweight landed on my leg, and I almost tore the – 
MCL ligament in my knee. Oh wow! But it was a you know I had a, a second third degree sprain with complete immobility. I couldn't move my leg, and it was a week before World Championship, so I, I didn't get the chance to fight in the 1997 Worlds. Wow! You know I had to sit out of the competition as a result of that injury. So you know, I had just taken a third place in the Olympics in '96. I had won every won every tournament in '97. I was slated to you know you know have a chance at winning the worlds, and then I had to sit. So I didn't get a chance to fight in the worlds for four years. Right? I had '95 yeah. worlds. I had to skip '97. I didn't get to go to the worlds again until 1999. Wow! You know, that that probably was even more camp. devastating to you. Of course. So I was. That was that really pissed me off. Wow, that was crazy. And you warn about that. Yeah, every time that there's a lot of people in the match is, is dangerous. Especially doing judo and especially when you don't you're trying to train a world team and you only have seven seven men and se seven men on the world team, seven women on the world team. Your focus is on the athletes that you're getting ready for worlds. We're a week out. You don't need to have 100 people training. You only need to have, you know, seven partners. Mm -hmm. You know? That's true. That's true. Now, talking about the team, uh, this is a question because I'm originally from Brazil uh, and the, the, the judo team in Brazil, they always do a good job when they go to the Olympics. There is always uh, some good performance. Sure. Uh, Flavio Canto, uh, uh, Olympian. Many, many uh, guys. Yeah, many sure. guys, yeah. But the, the, my question is, when I, I moved to U.S. 17 years ago and I always thought that because of the infrastructure that the U.S. has, because of everything... Um, judo here would be way bigger you know than than in brazil uh and you would see way more uh, uh local tournaments and competitions and you know and the team would do better uh every year in the olympics why what do you think is missing to to get there understanding that we have such a huge infrastructure in us like as a country right well, we have we have a we have a huge we have a huge infrastructure for sport, but we don't have the infrastructure for judo. So if you think about if you think about all the sports where Americans are successful in the Olympic Games, you know you take something like swimming, for example, mm -hmm. or you take something like wrestling, as another example. Those sports are in every school system, they're in every high school, they're in every college. They have so as a young kid coming up, you can be a somebody. If you wrestle, you can be a somebody if you're on the swim team or, you know, basketball team, whatever sport Americans are good at. And we win in the Olympic Games. Most of those sports have a feeder system, which is tied to the school system, mm. which is high, junior high school, high school, college. They get the scholarships in college and then they can go on to the Olympics and they can win thereafter. And it's a very it, it's very, very competitive because. There's so much emphasis and focus on it at the collegiate level. Yeah. So, you know, any of those sports I just mentioned, you know, we have college teams. But judo, we don't have college teams. Judo, we don't have high school teams. There's no infrastructure for the sport of judo. The other thing you have to realize is that, you know, when we win, when we win medals in judo in the Olympics, we win one medal, two medals, or maximum has been two medals, really. Mm -hmm. So... The U.S. team wins 100 medals at the Olympic Games. Judo's two of 100. Yeah. It's not that popular. It's not that big a deal. Swimming wins 30. Track and field wins 25. Yeah. Gymnastics wins 10. You know, you can name the sport, but and they're, they're typically all gold because the U.S. team focuses on gold medals. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you're one or two of 100, it's not a big deal. 
Whereas in Brazil, your judo team wins two, three medals. Your whole country only wins 10. Yep, yeah, that's, a, that's a great point. So those three medalists, they're superstars because they're sometimes judo is always the first competition at the Olympics. So typically the first medalist from Brazil is a judoka. Yep. So now they're superstars. They won all the media attention. Then what happens when all the media is on it? Mm -hmm. Then all the people, they become heroes and everybody wants to do that sport and be like that person. They become celebrities. Yeah. And then there's a trickle-down effect to it where everybody, you know, now the feeder systems come. It's the same like if you look at Israel. This, the country of Israel right now is massive in judo. And the reason why is because 25 years ago when I was competing, there was a girl in 92 Olympics, Yayala Rad. She was the first medalist ever in any sport. She was a judoka. <laughs> Well, she she became instantly a national hero. You know, invited to the, you know, not the White House, but invited to you know with the Queen or the the, the president of the country, and all the attention was on this girl who became put Israel on the map as a legitimate sport. Then all the money went into judo, and here we are, twenty something years later, judo is a legitimate medal sport from Israel. You know, and and their celebrities in their country. Yeah. That's very because true. Because they've now won multiple Olympic medals in that sport. That's where all the kids go. Yeah. So the solution for uh, for U.S. would be to include judo in in you know as a, a regular sport in school. It's very hard. Yes, it, it is. Well, number one, the first thing to do would be to to get it in colleges. You'd have to figure out how you can put it in colleges, because without without a path to even a partial scholarship or even a you know, a break on tuition. That's why everybody does sports to get recruited and to be a somebody. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to be somebodies. So the way to be a somebody is you got to do a mainstream sport that's recognized by other people. Yeah. That's what typically what, you know, that's why kids play football because they want to be a somebody in their local high school. And if they're really talented, then they want to get recruited and they want to go to college and they want to say they got a scholarship to go to college or they're playing for a, a prestigious, you know, team. Yeah. You know, so it it, it it snowballs into something, becomes something big. But it has to start with college because we need to get it in the colleges and universities. Then it can trickle down, you know. Mm -hmm. But it's very hard to get. It's very hard to get um, sports into into school systems now, especially into high schools because it's very competitive. There's, there's a there's a hundred other sports they can pick from. Yeah. You know, and there's only so much in the athletic budgets – And the American school systems, they're not nationalized. You know, you have to go like city by city and get accepted and recognized in each city. It's not that easy to do. Yeah. It's a lot of work. No, so I think it has to start at the college level first. And judo has somewhat of an advantage because it's a gen gender equal sport. Right. You know, it, it hits that title line. You can have a girls and a boys team. Mm -hmm. In fact, if it was, was going to be in colleges, I'd recommend that you make it a team sport only. And you have three girls and three boys on the team, and they compete against other colleges where there's three girls and three boys on the team as well. And that's the focus. Yeah. No, makes team, sense. Team sports. Team sport, that's for sure. Uh, and, and one of the, the reasons I ask this as well is because uh, when I go, I, I compete in jiu-jitsu, I BJJF, and when I go to IBJJF competitions, it's kind of, it's full. I mean, it's, it's gigantic. Everything is packed. I mean, prior to the pandemic, of course. 
but and there is always a competition going on uh, in Texas. There is always a competition going on every month. There is a, someone is competing in jiu-jitsu, but judo we don't see that many. And when we when we go to judo competitions, it's it's really the amount of people is not really that much. And I and I, and I it was hard for me to understand because jiu-jitsu arrive in U.S. way later than judo, and and suddenly it becomes mainstream. Uh, but judo is is not that uh, many of people. Uh, do do you why, why you think it, it happened that? I mean, why jiu-jitsu took over the mainstream here in U.S. and judo that is way more uh, is a way older sport in U.S. didn't really take off. Opportunity hmm. really comes down to opportunity. If you think about when when did jiu-jitsu come to America? Jiu-jitsu came to America in the nineties. Yep. Right. Yep. When did the when did the UFC start? The UFC started in the early 90s. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. So once Hoist Gracie was crowned the champion of the first couple UFCs and everybody promoted Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, that's when everybody said, well, where do I learn this Jiu-Jitsu stuff? I want to learn it. So there was demand. Mm-hmm. Then what happened was the Brazilians came here and they started opening up dojos. And, you know, it started in L.A., really. Yep. You know, So then from there, everybody realized, man, there's an opportunity to teach people jiu-jitsu and most people in Brazil are broke so they came to America for opportunity and they started saying hey man you can open a jiu-jitsu school and you can make a living doing it mm-hmm. we can charge real money doing it and it's validated on TV every single month Yeah, you know and so it was free marketing for jiu-jitsu and then those Brazilians told other Brazilians and then well, they were really smart about it they even today jiu-jitsu is still growing in this country because people are going to areas where jiu-jitsu is underdeveloped and they're starting, they're putting their roots there. So, you know, it started, LA was a big hot spot, New York's a hot spot, Texas is a hot spot, you know, Florida's a hot spot, but now like they're opening dojos in Idaho, they're opening yeah. Mississippi, like they're, they're going to these other states where it's underdeveloped but there's opportunity. Mm-hmm. And they're starting chains, you know, and they've got three, four, five dojos in that area and it's growing and growing and growing. Then they put the sport, but the main thing is they've done it as a business. Well, exactly, you know, exactly. They, yep. They've done it for. They're not giving it away for free. They're charging, you know, 150 on the low end. As high end is like 250, 300 dollars a month to train jujitsu. The instructor can make money. He opens a professional school. He can buy nice mats. He can put make it a nice um, experience for people, a good place for people to hang out, and it's become a culture. Yeah. Of you know a, a young adult culture of hey man we'll go to jujitsu we'll be around other young guys we're gonna get fit we're gonna learn some self defense maybe we go out after have a beer or we go out after have some food we enjoy each other's company and oh guess what next weekend there's a tournament dude when we bring our wives or our girlfriends we'll go have fun in Vegas and mm-hmm. it be- it's become a social thing right that's true you know it's not about winning and who's the who's gonna win an Olympic medal or who's gonna be a world champion it's about Let's have fun. Let's compete. Let's live, have a healthy lifestyle. No pressure, you know. And and I look at like I don't know if you remember back years ago the guys that used to ride Harley Davidsons. It was mm-hmm. the same thing. It's a movement. It's a culture. Guys get their bikes and they'd spend their money on motorcycles. They go ride on weekends with their friends. Make you know go have dinner together. Whatever. Now that that's what jujitsu is. Yeah. No. I, and, and to me, uh, it, it, what is outstanding from the sport perspective is because I started with jujitsu and then I moved. I, I started doing judo as well because I needed to improve my takedown. But yep. then I started doing judo and learning more about judo in Nawaza and was like, all those things 
not all, but a lot of those things came from judo. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and judo has the advantage of the takedown. So it's like, why? And not, not only that, but it has the appealing also for you as a kid to train and perhaps become an Olympic, right? So from the commercial perspective, there is more appealing doing judo because you can be an Olympic uh, athlete because you can go to the Olympics, right? Training judo. You cannot go to the Olympics training jiu-jitsu. So I, I never understood why this thing is not explored from the commercial perspective that much, you know. It's given away. It's given away, and it was given away in this country. You know, years ago, the the mindset of most most instructors were, "I'm not going to make a living from judo. I'm going to pass on the art. I'm doing it because I love the sport. I want other people to enjoy it and love it too." Hmm. And it was really passed down from the Japanese that way. And then you know, the instructors that came here, they didn't open dojos professionally. They opened it as a hobby, or they opened it to just spread the art. Hmm. But over time, you know, American people saw it it's very very hard very physical and we focus too much on sport and winning medals and winning competitions and it's really just about changing people's lives and making them healthy you know and, and healthy feel good about themselves self-defense you know we lost the whole self-defense aspect of the sport there's no more kata there's no more you know taking the knives away and how to defend yourself in hand-to-hand -hand combat you know um it's really just focused on how do we win competitions and realistically a lot of people don't like going to competitions mm -hmm. you know because of the anxiety level there's too much stress I don't want to do it for that I just want to do it so I can you know learn some self-defense get fit feel better about myself and I want yeah. to bring my my kids or my family to a positive environment yeah you know and we've gone too far to the competition side of it and if you look at like karate or taekwondo or any of the other arts it's not about competition you know, so they've done the extreme. They keep everybody in house. They keep everybody safe, comfortable, feeling good, and and that's how you grow a sport. You don't grow a sport by pushing everybody towards competition. Yeah, no, that's 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 a good point. Um, but but I still think that it's a huge opportunity for Judo to take off as a as a culture, just like Jiu Jitsu, because it's it's, <laughs> well, it's beautiful. Now, it's a beautiful art. I mean, it's well, it's just amazing. Stuck. Now that now that the problem is. We don't have enough instructors. Now the problem is judo is not accessible in this country. What I mean by that is, Yuri, is if you you want to you want your kid to do judo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she does actually. My daughter. <laughs> okay, but but if you look, where's the nearest dojo? You might get lucky and there's one on your corner, but mm -hmm. I guarantee you, in most states, the nearest dojo might be an hour away. True. True. Or yep. two hours away. Yeah. You're not going to start your kid training in judo if you got to drive an hour there and an hour back. There's mm -hmm. not enough time in our lives today to give up that much time. Yeah. Especially for a sport that you don't even know your kid's going to like or stay with. Yeah. No, and you... there's more competition than ever. You got baseball, basketball, soccer, jiu-jitsu, karate, right there in their town, five minutes away. Mm-hmm. So you know it's and that list goes on and on and on. You know, but. So it's hard. There's, there's not. It's not accessible. Even if people wanted to judo, there's not enough dojos for them to learn. Yeah, the 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 the, the work that Flavio Canto uh, is doing in Brazil is is pretty amazing. Uh, with the the project that he has uh, there, there's a mm -hmm. lot of kids doing judo, and there's a lot of schools in in Brazil for judo. As well. But you said something very very uh, true because for me. Uh, to go to, to, to the dojo where my daughter trains is 40 minutes uh, drive 
and in between my house and the and the judo dojo there are at least like 10 bjj academies in between it's like wow <laughs> right but the other thing you just mentioned about flavio canto in brazil brazil has plenty of instructors there's plenty of black belts in brazil judo is a big big sport in brazil and it you know you you can get good quality instruction everywhere in america you can't I didn't know about this problem of not having a lot of black belts in the U.S. I didn't know that. There's not that many. Interesting. Oh, there's not that many people that actually want, that, that could run a school. Right. There might be, but even if there's black belts, there's not people that want to teach or that want to be able to run a school and do it, you know, even three nights a week. Did you ever thought, uh, did you ever thought about uh, opening a school for you? I have a school. Oh, you, you have a school in your state? I have a dojo, yeah. yes. Okay, and uh, I run. I've been I've been running a dojo since 1996. I've had my own school. Okay, because I thought that you were only dedicated to train athletes and dedicated to the Fuji sports as well. I have a very recreate. I have I have both a recreational and a competitive dojo. Before COVID, we had 250 students doing judo. I, just judo, nothing else. Just judo. That's amazing. Students. That's amazing. That's like a jujitsu number here in Texas in in a school. We had this. Right before COVID. Now I have like 90-something. Really? Because it's wow. A lot, also, a lot of social distance clap. Well, we're not in Texas. Nothing's open in Massachusetts. Like we can only operate at 25% capacity. Everybody's mandated to still wear, you know, had to wear masks through all of COVID. Uh, we can only have up to uh, 15 people on the mat at one time. I had 250 people. We had 40, 50 people in a class. Now I have to have a class at 3 o'clock. Four o'clock, five o'clock, six o'clock, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, mm -hmm. with only 15 people on the mat at a time, and they don't want to do social distance judo. They want to do real yeah, judo. That's true. And, and you, do you still doing Zoom classes as well? Yeah, we have Zoom classes for kids, all the uh, kids and adults, because the people that don't want to come into the dojo, we want to continue to give them judo training and exercise and feel part of a community. And then the people that do come in, some of them we have social distance only judo. And now, obviously, we have classes, Randori classes for the, you know, the elite, more of the elite team or the competitors. Oh. But we still have to limit it to 15 people on the mat. That's true. Yeah. Now, since you've been doing, teaching judo for uh, so long and you just uh, exposed the problem of not having a lot of uh, professors, black belts professors that are actually willing to, to teach, um, What is your recommendation, let's say, if someone is trying to, to open a, a dojo and they have the investment, but they are not black belts, for example, right? They, they want to, to hire someone to teach for them. What, what are some of the key aspects that you believe a, a, a judo dojo needs to have in order to be successful? Well, you have to, a lot of people in judo don't teach from a curriculum. You have to have a curriculum. You have to have a path to black belt mm -hmm. for all of your students. If you want to be successful, the student that comes in the door has to know what's next for right. me. What am I going to learn and what do I need to know to get to my next belt? Because everybody has to have a goal. Yeah. I don't want to just show up randomly to practice for a year and not know when I'm going to get promoted. I need to know what I need to do to get my next rank. That's number one. You have to have a, a curriculum and a path to black belt in order to have a big school. Yeah, it, it, Because people yeah, want... People want that, that path. That's something that the Gracies did really well with Jiu-Jitsu. They had a path from white to black. Right. Uh, and, 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 and you have, you have to have, to have. Yeah, that's true. 
And a lot of judo play dojos don't run their school that way. So that's number one. Number two, you have to have a good staff. You have to run your dojo professionally. And you have to have a good staff that, that you know, not just teaches judo, but teaches them to be good leaders, good champions in life. Mm -hmm. Talks about work ethic, talks about, you know, integrity, talks about discipline, respect, you know, because that's what ultimately people are bringing their their children or they're coming there for themselves. I want to be more disciplined. I want to be more focused. I want to be more fit, you know, or I want my child to pay attention better. I want it to be, you know, to say no to drugs. I want them to be respectful at home and to be respectful of others. So you have to have a good culture at your school that reinforces the things that your students are looking for. Yeah. And then, you know, if you're not a black belt, you know, you can you can uh, be maybe be certified to be an instructor under somebody else. That's what jujitsu does really well. You know, they don't they don't necessarily have a black belt that opens every school. A lot of blue belts, purple belts, brown belts open schools in jujitsu, but the master instructor is a black belt, and he 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 comes there once a month and teaches and does seminars and does the promotions of the students and so that purple belt you know the lineage is really important in jujitsu, so find somebody to to learn under who can certify you or who can validate you as teaching their system, the and therefore you can then open a school and run a school successfully without you know, w without having your black belt. Do you, uh, because this is very common here in Texas, and I believe it's very common in any dojo, do you as a professor, do you still run Dory with your students? I, like I said, I, I, right now I'm paying the price, man, with with <laughs> with, with uh, disc injuries. So uh, I did Randori, yes, with my students all the time. Uh, I really stopped Randoring with the Olympic-level athletes in my early to mid 40s so when I was about 42 to 44 I was getting injured too much I had to stop randoring with the Olympians because I just couldn't keep that yeah. pace but I still randoried with you know all the teenagers and all the recreational black belts and you know those types of people I would work out with yeah but when I was a teacher I was a teacher and then when I if I was going to train then I had my father who's an instructor he would run the class and I would just train with the students mm -hmm. Somebody has to be responsible for making sure everybody's safe, everybody's doing the right thing, and, and you know the class is being run professionally. And the other thing that uh, that I found a little bit controversial um, on the on this learning path, and I know that this is more like a, a Japanese uh, culture of uh, uchikomi, but there is a lot of people mm -hmm. that say, "Well, uchikomi is good." But I've seen some students that they don't sometimes don't complete the throw just because they are so used to do uh, half movement with Fujikomi that when it's time to throw, they hesitate, right? Because they don't throw that much. They are always on, on Fujikomi. What, what's your take on that? How do you create that balance? Because I personally have seen my daughter doing this, right? She does the half of the movement and she doesn't explode all the way to the end. Mm -hmm. Well, it depends on what level you're at, right? And what the objective is. Obviously, the Uchikomi teaches proper movement because, you know, the the footwork, the body placement, the positioning, the kazushi, like all of that is done through uchikomi. And you have to have that repetitive motion to learn how to fit the space properly. But you also have to combine that with com completion of the throw. And that's when we do a lot of crash pad training, a lot of training with throwing onto the landing mats. So that even the young students, because not a lot of, nobody wants, we don't spend countless hours teaching our kids ukemi. Because ukemi is boring, 
you know, we don't want our students, if they're going to be competitors, to have good ukemi. We don't want them falling at all. So we don't reinforce that that falling behavior. So when they do take falls on the hard floors, it hurts. So we do it with – you have to do a lot of throwing drills, you know, throwing drills onto the crash pad or throwing drills moving around the mat as well, you know, to, to reinforce that completion of the Did throw. you adopt uh, during the pandemic any – uh, dummy type of work because a lot of gyms they started using dummies uh, during the pandemic and and some gyms said that they actually like it now because they can throw the dummy all the way. Uh, what is your take on that? First thing I did is I bought I bought ten ten throwing dummies as soon as COVID hit back in March. I bought ten throwing dummies. I bought kids ones and I bought adult mm -hmm. ones because at that time we could only have eight to ten people in a room at a right. time, so I didn't need any more than ten dummies, mm -hmm. right? Spent like five thousand dollars on my dummies and my uchikomi bands, so I did. Yes, we did throwing dummies and we taught judo classes. If you were, you know, doing a class, but you had to throw the dummy ten times with the ponsei and agi or koshi groom or osoto, mm -hmm. we did this. Yes, that it's the only way to keep it fun and interactive. Otherwise, they buy themselves just doing shadow stuff. Yeah, and I think also it's a good way for you to practice your trolls without worry of hurting your your. Okay, you know, uh, it's, right. it's it's a good practice. I personally actually got a dummy just waiting to to arrive. Uh, I got there the, with uh, <laughs> uh, Doctor Roddy. <laughs> okay. He, got, he he said he's been using a lot of dummies uh, on his gene as well. Uh, you can do a lot of other training things with it. You know, you can make them carry the dummy. You can make them do squats with the dummy. You can do hold down, you know, hold down drills, move from one throat one technique to another, and call out the techniques. I mean, there's a lot of stuff you can do with dummies. You know, and at the, at the end of the day, you got to keep your doors open. You got to generate generate revenue. So if you can, you know, keep them excited about coming to the dojo, you'll do yeah, anything. Absolutely. Oh, Jimmy, you are a, a true uh, encyclopedia of judo and sports. So <laughs> I really, really appreciate uh, your time uh, talking to, to to the audience about the the beautiful art of judo. And uh, and also reinforce how important it is the mindset of a, of a champion. Uh, that's a very important aspect of the game that a lot of people ignore. Um, so thank you very much for for that. Can't emphasize that enough. How important the mind is. I think, without question, that is the, the that is the key ingredient to greatness. That separates the best from the rest. Yeah, that, and that's so. Thank you for having me on the show. I wish you good luck in your recovery. I hope you recover fully and I get to see you compete in the next jiu-jitsu yeah, tournament. Or, or judo. I, 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 yes. Or judo, either way. <laughs> All right, Jeannie. Thank you very much. All right, buddy. Take, take thank care. You, Yuri. Bye -bye.